Welcome to the Vortex Nation podcast brought to you by lovers of hunting, shooting, public lands, the Second Amendment, and good food. What's going on, Vortex Nation? And welcome to another Vortex Nation podcast. Now, this time we're coming to you. Uh, we're, we're back in the same spot. We're with Paul Neese, Ryan Muggenhern, Mark Boardman here to my left. And we're going to talk to you guys about long-range shooting. We're calling this one long-range 1001 instead of 101. Uh, part of the reason there being, I think, people set a benchmark for long-range shooting, oftentimes at 1,000 yards. But for many people, that's a benchmark that seems maybe unattainable. So we're going to kind of talk a little bit about how to get out there. If you're kind of new to the long-range shooting game, maybe some of the equipment you need, some of the, the things you need to know, practice, stuff like that. So, guys, thanks for joining us. We'll just dive right in. But yeah. long-range shooting, obviously, that's kind of a it's, it's a daunting thing to get into. What kind of long-range shooting experience do we have in the room right now? We've probably all got different takes on it. You know, I come, if, if everyone remembers, from a Western hunting background. So I've, you know, done a lot of guiding in the mountain country out west, and we do a lot of long-range shooting out there typically, a lot of cross-canyon stuff. So it's, it's something that's a good skill that everybody should have. We'll get into this probably later in the podcast, but the definitions of, of long-range shooting and then long-range shooting that's ethical for hunting, there's kind of a whole topic mm, of discussion right. right in there that we can... <laughs> we can touch into, but that's sort of, you know, that's sort of where my background primarily came from for doing that sort of thing. Cool. Being a hand loader and, and shooter and enthusiast in general, uh, competitively or recreationally, I've done quite a bit of it. Yeah. And, and with Paul too, the, the balance between long range shooting and then long range hunting and shooting is something I do hope we touch on. Indeed. Well, Definitely. We should. Ryan, you've shot some pretty interesting things at long ranges. Like you have that pretty trick 22 Mm-hmm. That you've shot out pretty far, yeah, and yeah. then there's that high wall that you've shot out pretty far too. Am I right? Yeah, I haven't brought the high <laughs> wall out as far as I'd like to yet, but uh, I would. I'm, I'm hoping to bring that one out to to 500 meters and beyond yet this summer. Uh, but the 22 out to 500 meters, that's a that's a good time. Defies a lot of physics. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, for sure. Um, need a tremendous amount of adjustment and an optic that's going to be able to to pony up that that kind of adjustment to get out there. But it's a hoot. It's yeah. fun to do. Well, let's talk about adjustment. Heck for yeah. Sure. Marco? So, yeah, I mean, my, my long-range shooting experience is probably similar to maybe Paul's and Ryan's. is kind of born out of, not necessity, but having a, kind of another tool or in your hunting arsenal, if you will. So, you know, hunt a lot out west, and I'd say even, you know, over the last 10 years or a lot of my time here at Vortex, you know, my definition of long-range has changed. My knowledge of long-range shooting has changed, and I think that's, you know, for a variety of of reasons, including just available equipment, technology, sharing of knowledge. I mean, there's just so much that that's yeah, going into that yeah, now. That, yeah. Um, but yeah, so f- for me, it's uh, just more hunting oriented. Even though I do enjoy shooting recreationally as well. Yeah, for sure. Well, we've got some good folks then in the room, and I'm myself. I mean, I'm just a Wisconsin boy. A lot of you guys have spent time out west where you can see for miles and miles. But 500 yards for a long time was long for me until I went out to the Vortex Extreme out in Utah and I shot out to 1,200. That was a lot of fun. But, yeah, got out in some big open country. Out oh, there. yeah. Oh, yeah. it's way different out there. Yeah. But, okay, so we're going to mention a few things here that uh, there's going to be some phrases, words, lingo, things like that. I figured we maybe get out of the way, have like a brief 101-style description for each one of these. I, these are a few I thought throw in any as you guys see if I miss any. But I figure, obviously, we're going to talk about uh, our zero, so, you know, just very basic. Our zero is just wherever we've sighted in our rifle and our rifle scope, too. Many people do it at the classic 100 yards. Sometimes there's varying different zeros. Maybe you guys have, have things to touch on there, but zero is something we'll mention. Our dope. So dope is data on previous engagements, and essentially what we're doing there is that's something when after you've zeroed in your rifle scope, you go to a ballistics calculator or something like that, where you're then plugging in all the information from your rifle uh, from your rifle scope, your atmospherics, your cartridge that you're shooting, all these things. Hopefully you've got a good muzzle velocity that you've maybe gotten a chronograph out for. And then that's going to give you essentially the, the ballistics of your bullet all the way out to, well, any yardage probably that you choose. But that dope then is essentially once you go back out to the range and you confirm it, because you can't always just go off what the computer tells you. Sometimes just Mother Nature or other things come into play and, and maybe have slight variances. But once you've confirmed it, that's your previous engagement. That's your data on previous engagements. So You'll get a, a lot of people do a dope card. We have dope discs that will essentially say at 300 yards, you got to dial in this much, right? 
and that's that's something that really is important to have for long range shooting. Uh, I've got MOA and MRAD, obviously two different units of measure. It's essentially like saying inches and inches and centimeters in some ways because there are two different ways of measuring the same types of things, which is drop for our bullets, target sizes, things like that. Yep, two, just two different ways of measuring an angle, basically. Is exactly, what it is. exactly. Yep. Ballistics, now that's something we've already said a couple of times. For example, ballistics is just the curvature of your bullet's flight through the air, right? Can anybody think of a better way to explain it? Yeah, you'll it? see, maybe you're thinking like the, the term BC too, Jimmy, that kind of, you'll, mm-hmm. you'll hear us talk about bullet BC and ballistics, and, and it's just a measure of how efficiently a bullet is traveling through the atmosphere. It's a, it's a way of sort of putting a number on it. So right. you'll right. definitely hear more about that as the conversation goes on here. Yeah, and the BC usually has like a number associated with it, and does it, does it go all the way up to one? Is that how it works? Or? It goes up it higher can, than that. It goes higher than that. that. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, and it's a little tricky because there's there's two ways that the the BC is measured, the drag coefficient in in G1 and G7, and we'll touch on that very quickly. Although we don't have to really get out in the weeds there, but there are two different terms commonly used in BC, so mm-hmm. we'll hit that. All right, all right. No, I think you nailed it there, Paul. I mean, essentially, it's just just how efficiently that bullet that's passes the best way through to think the air, about it. you know, yeah. and that, and that yep. number via measuring a variety of attributes is assigned to that bullet with, I'd say, generally like a higher BC is going to be a better bullet for long-range shooting, theoretically, right. because the higher BC bullet is going to... Shoot flatter. Shoot yeah. flatter. Well, like a, a slug doesn't have yeah. a very high BC, right. but, you know, whereas right. something like a thirty caliber bolt tail bullet would have a much higher BC than a slug. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so yeah. it just yep. streams through the air better. So then we got chronograph. I uh, already mentioned that one, too, as well. Chronograph is essentially a tool that a lot of long-range shooters use to get their proper muzzle velocity and and muzzle velocity is something that you can't always go by the box i've heard plenty of guys around here say that and and have found it to be true myself in practice as well you know i think a lot of times people grab the the ammo box off the shelf and they look at the muzzle velocity and they just plug that right into the ballistics calculator that'll probably get you maybe in the neighborhood it'll be a ballpark a ballpark it's not exact i know you guys you know ryan and paul i'm sure and mark you've used far more of these than than i have but if you speak to just yeah. chronographs in general and getting that information. No, it's a super cool tool. They, they really haven't changed much since they came out. Uh, it, it's just a device that, except for the new Magneto Speed and the new Labyrinth, right. which are, there's two are newer drastically ones different. that are yeah. pretty popular these days. But uh, effectively, the, the old version, and the, well, I shouldn't call it old because it is still current, just uses um, a brief transmission of light and then interrupting the light with the bullet's path and then a simple calculator to determine like the speed of the bullet between the two points that are looking at that light or these two eyes that see that light turn on and turn back off again and then it back figures your velocity for you. But new products, uh, magneto speeds and lab radar, which is something you'll hear a lot of guys talk about. The magneto speed actually measures the bullet by, I guess you could call it the feel of the bullet, if you will, the, the metallurgy of the projectile itself leaving the barrel. Um, doesn't use any kind of light source or anything like that and it actually attaches to your barrel. Very nifty tool. Um, extremely accurate. Uh, I, I've got one myself. I shoot it often. Um, and the new lab radar is, is, that's like out of science fiction, how that thing works. Mm. It looks like a tablet. You put it on your desk yeah. and you shoot yeah. and it tells you exactly how far, or how fast your bullet's going at 100, 200, 300. No way. Oh, it's cool. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Okay. Very so slick. why is muzzle velocity important though? Well, and I guess maybe yeah. even velocity at other distances perhaps too, but why is the muzzle velocity so, so important? So if, if we're looking at ballistics and, and if we, Define ballistics as the study of all things relative to this bullet's flight characteristic and path. The muzzle velocity is is literally like the oomph behind the you know the vehicle here, or the horsepower, or the the amount of fuel, and anything that would would I guess have a number to uh, signify what is going to propel this projectile and how far. You have to plug that number in along with the weight, uh, the atmospheric data, the ballistic coefficient, like we mentioned earlier as a starting point. It's like the first thing that has to go in there. I'm not going to say it's probably the most critical thing, but it's right up there. It's one of the top yeah. ones. Yeah. You know, you can almost think about it like a, you know, a baseball pitcher throwing a yeah. baseball and a, and a guy mm-hmm. that can throw out the super high speed fastballs compared to a guy that's, that's not as fast. The faster it is, the flatter it's going to go for a longer mm-hmm. period yeah. of time. It's just a, you know, I think everybody can visualize that one pretty easily. Yeah. And I would, I would say that it takes precedence over even BC for a lot of things um, when, when you're looking at this and if, if we're not getting super technical, but because velocity can overcome BC, it can be a, a, a heavier weighted figure 
uh, in the ballistics calculation, if you're pushing a bullet fast enough, you can run a bullet of lower BC and, and actually have a flatter trajectory than, than a bullet of higher BC at, at lower velocity. So it's a very important figure. That's interesting. So, I, it goes to show there's so many variables involved, but it also goes to show too, and, and we'll get into equipment, I'm sure, and everything too, but how important it is to get your muzzle velocity. And so not everybody's going to have a chronograph on it, but I've heard mm-hmm. of many ranges where they have a chronograph there that you can rent it or borrow it or, you know, if you got a friend that has one. But it is important if you're, if you're thinking yeah, about if really you get, serious If you get serious about the long-range game, you're really going to have to have that tool at some point. You know, we used to tell people that if you want to run the velocity numbers that you see printed on ammo boxes, you can sort of limit your effective long-range accuracy somewhere out in maybe the five to 600-yard range, and that's really about it. You know, at that point, the variance, you know, you, you know if you take that number off the box, it's not absolutely correct, and so you can maintain pretty good accuracy maybe out to 500 yards or so using that number, but then once you start to get beyond that, you know, you, you can't trust that number anymore. Yeah. It's just going to, it's going to start to make too big a difference in that ballistic curve. So yeah. mm-hmm. it becomes an important tool as, as you progress out. It is. I mean, it's a super critical, you know, piece of that puzzle and definitely for sure, like a necessary number to have as accurate as possible to, to enter into whatever ballistic calculator you're going to use to calculate that ballistics curve. But going off what you said, Paul, you know, I haven't always had access to a chronograph, but and we're going to get into a couple things here that we'll probably get in down the road too. But I guess how I've gone through that process is, yeah, I use that, I use that, that number off the box as a starting point, generate that ballistics chart, you know, mm-hmm. yep. go, go to the range where I can shoot at a distance where I feel like I can accur- accurately, you know, execute shots with precision, generally about five, 600 yards. I feel like I can get a pretty tight group there. And then essentially, like what you say, validate your data. That's right. right. What, you, know, you know, what you're talking about there, Mark, is, is validating a trajectory. And I think mm-hmm. that's, that would be something else maybe we will touch on a little yeah. bit because you can, you can sort of end around having a chronograph in a way by using exactly. that technique. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah. I'd, I'd get to the range and maybe my, my dope chart or my, what I would call my initial dope chart would say, you know, I need to dial X amount of MOA at 500 yards. And then I might find in real life that I'm hitting two MOA low, maybe two MOA high, and then go back into that calculator. And what I would actually do was tweak my velocity up and down right. to yep. account for yeah. that variance. Yeah. So for me, like, I don't know actually in the end if that's my actual velocity, but that was the variable that I could tweak to, you know, adjust right, so everything right. lines up. These days, most of the ballistic programs will let you do that type of thing where you can, you know, you can put in actual observed data that might have varied from what initially was predicted by that that boxed velocity. And then that's, you'll see that referred to as validating a trajectory or truing a trajectory. And a lot of the ballistic programs that are out there these days will allow you to do that right in the program. So you can you can enter in the data you started with, the data you actually observed, and then allow the program to true that up. And the program will true it via tweaking both the velocity and the BC numbers a little bit. But once that's done, then it will you know it'll do a future correction for all the other you know the the future ranges and distances that you put in there. So hmm. very that's, handy, good to know. That's that's awesome, and that's actually good because we're going to get into also we're mentioning now a ballistics program, for example. Obviously, we talked about chronographs a good bit, but you know something something that's good probably for a lot of people wonder is what am I going to need to do this too? So just just equipment wise, and of course, actually even some non equipment things because I do want to make sure you can't just buy to play. You, know, you can't or buy to win or, or buy to your way to a thousand yards. You got to actually get some practice. And so the first thing I think is is practice. Of course, you got to get to the range and just work on you know your trigger finger and all these different little sort of skills that you need to shoot long range. But, you know, we're talking about, for example, a ballistics calculator. That's something that you really need for this because otherwise, how are you going to account for all this bullet right. drop way out right. there? I mean, I don't know anybody who can just do all that in their head. Extremely adept mathematician. Well, when you, you know, when you use the term dope back there, Jim, that, uh, you know, the history of that probably predates ballistic calculators. And that's, you know, that undoubtedly comes from early snipers that, basically accumulated a, a data book over, you know, years and time of shooting, and they simply would record all the, you know, the varying distances, the shot, the corrections that they dialed in to get hits at those distances, all the weather conditions, all that sort of thing. 
So in years past, not everyone had easy access to all these ballistics calculators that are out there today. So in some ways, that the, there's a coming back to that technology thing, it's made a lot of this a lot easier than it used to be. You don't have right. to have this guarded collection of, you know, of data that you you know very carefully recorded over many years in time. You you can simply now use the programs to do a lot of that. Shooting at that rock out there that's at. 330 ish and then that twig out there is a little bit further and yeah, i had to hold yeah, over on this ash mark <laughs> carefully recording the temperature and the pressure and the humidity and all those things yeah yeah, yeah. so that's i mean yeah and that that's super important then you know and, and nowadays like you said the ballistics calculators make it a lot easier what other ones have you guys seen out there mobile app i use iSnipe and ballistics arc I've been using yeah. iSnipe since I got yeah. my first iPhone 4. This was way back when, and I've become very accustomed to it. And I think Ballistic Arc is a little more in-depth, but a little, iSnipe A is, little different. It's yeah. got some other features to yep. it. Yeah, I think everybody, depending on what you've used in the past, and history will have their preferences. I've used Ballistics Arc. I enjoy that one, mm-hmm. too. And then uh, Shooter is one that I've yeah. used for yep. many years. Yep. And, you know, just like Ryan, I've just become very familiar with mm-hmm. the you know, the various screens and how it works. So it's it's just easy to come back to that one yeah. all the time. Mm-hmm. Mark, you got any other ones, Dad? You know, I guess one additional one, I've used Shooter a little bit with like Paul, um, ours, and then Streelock. I have a little bit of experience Oh, yeah, with. that's a popular one, yep. So, yeah, the, the ballistic calculator, and then, yeah, that just goes goes into so many things. But how about, here's a big one that everybody always talks about, the gun. I don't know how much time we really need to spend on this because you could probably go down a lot of rabbit trails. I don't think you need to go crazy. I mean, heck, Ryan Muckenhurn over here sitting across from me is the is the one who shot a thousand yards with a Ruger American six five Creedmoor <laughs> and a Dimeback Tactical on top. So, you know, I mean, you can you very can do reasonable it. budget. Yeah. <laughs> you can do it with a lot of things. There's probably a few out there that would maybe not be the ideal choice. But what's kind of like a good general maybe setup? Doesn't have to be an exact brand and model, but like what's a good general setup? I'll, I'll say this: I was on the range last night. Actually, had a customer's rifle up here. Uh, and then one of our test rifles. And that, that customer's rifle is a three thirty eight Lapua that he had bought specifically for shooting long range. And that is not an easy gun to shoot. <laughs> and I think, and it's a very expensive gun to shoot too. I mean, that we're, you know, you're up at that $4 around. Uh, yeah, that certainly comes into play. Yeah, yeah. and so the, the one thing that I want to tell people is like, if you want to get into long range, yeah, you're going to need a rifle, but, but like step back from the internet real quick. And consider something that's affordable to shoot so that you can do it often and frequently and become very proficient with it. And even if that's a 223, you can do some surprising distance work with that cartridge. But like the new 6.5 Creedmoor is obviously very popular. 243, 6 Creedmoor, 308. Classic. Yes. Um, and, and you might be surprised. Dig through your safe with what you already have, there may be a surprising long-range gun. Sure, yeah. there, are, there are many yeah. of them yeah. out there. Yeah, the, you know, from my hunting background, the the seven Remington Magnum oh, is yeah. very popular Western yeah. hunting cartridge, yeah. but it, it can also excel at the long-range game. Yes. And it's a, you know, it's been out there for many, many years. It's available in a lot of rifles. So, mm-hmm. you know, there's an example of a common one that would certainly work. Well, and, and if you do have one that you can shoot more, more economically, a little bit friendlier to shoot, from a recoil perspective, all those skills and experience will translate over in the event you do need to use a heavier cartridge. Yep, yep. And, and to credit that 6.5 Creedmoor, not to say that that's the best long-range cartridge, I think that's why that thing has gotten so popular is because it's very affordable to shoot. It's very low impact on the shooter. And most of the guns you can get it in are quite accurate, actually. And, and you know, if you go out to the range as a, as a regular Joe, if you will, or a regular Jane, and spend $100 on ammo, you can shoot it all up and not feel fatigued. You don't have a flinch. You're not bruised. Your eyes aren't trying to roll out of their head, you know, afterwards. And I think, like, that is the most valuable thing. Find a shootable cartridge. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, hand in hand. And I completely agree with Ryan on the 6.5 Creedmoor. It's a great choice. The other thing there that particularly makes that one attractive is there is some very, very good factory-loaded ammunition available for that. Mm -hmm. Very consistent, very accurate. So you don't necessarily have to be a hand loader to get into that. You can, you know, you can buy that ammo off the shelf, and it it performs at the level of hand-loaded ammunition. So that takes another sort of hurdle out of this for the 
the, you know, someone new into the game. You don't have to be an instant, you know, you don't have to be an expert on hand loading. Mm-hmm. Right. Am I mistaken that actually m- most people who shoot the 6.5 Creedmoor, there are hand loaders, but but don't most just go with the factory loads? Yeah, it's the, the factory Hornady ammunition is mm-hmm. very, very good for that that cartridge. Yeah. Sweet. But then, okay, we talked a little bit about the rifle, obviously, and I, I think the, the important thing to take away there is just, I'm probably just repeating what we've already said, but just you don't need to go crazy. You don't need to go to some super custom kind of Gucci rifle builder. Not that they make a bad product. They they make fine products, I'm sure, maybe once you get more serious into it. But this is a 1001 course, right? So, yeah, right. a lot of, uh, lot of nice yeah. off-the-shelf stuff. Yeah. You, do, you do want something that shoots fairly consistently, though. I'll throw right. that out there. You know, you mm-hmm. can you can find that out at 100 yards range. You don't necessarily have to go out and immediately try shooting at long range, but you need something that groups fairly well at 100 yep. yards. You know, mm-hmm. there's not much point trying to shoot accurately out at, at, you know, eight, nine hundred, a thousand yards if you haven't got a rifle that can shoot very nice tight groups at a hundred yards. So right. that's a that's a pretty good indicator. Exactly. You know, I mean I think th- that's what I was gonna touch on. No matter what the rifle is, it needs to be an accurate rifle, you know, and, and something that we talked about guys will say, at least I guess if you you know, think in MOAs like a sub MOA rifle, which I'll get in. I know this is we're trying to keep things basic, but I th- I think a common misconception <laughs> is that an MOA is one inch, right? And I, and I think r- roughly it is, right? At, it, at, 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 100, at 100 yards. That's people forget that, At 100 that yards. Too. But yeah. it's actually 1.047 inches at 100 yards, even though in terms of long-range shooting, I think we would all suggest that a person essentially quit thinking in inches and think in MOAs or mills, depending on, their respective setup, but and getting back to what Paul was talking about, if a gun doesn't shoot good at 100 yards, it's just extrapolate that as you go out because, like we're talking about it, MOA or Mills is an angle, so right. that bullet is essentially on an angle. So if you picture a piece of pie and how I guess either line on the angle of that pie extends from the center. Yeah, that same that same inch at a hundred yards. Let's say you, let's say you can shoot groups and you could keep every all your shots at a hundred yards within a one inch circle. Well, that's that's really you know a little borderline for long range shooting because what you think about is that same angle. Now, if we take that out to the thousand yards, now you're shooting in a ten inch circle, mm-hmm. and so it's opened up considerably out there. So if you you know if you can remember that it'll tell you so even that that rifle you may think you're doing pretty well to shoot the you know the one inch groups at 100 but that opens up pretty big when you get out to longer distances that's true it does we talked okay i gotta bring up one more thing about the rifle actually that that just popped in my head too but one thing to consider one of many but barrel twist here's one thing and i i kind of bring this up as a little bit of a random thing to bring up but the other day i was at the range and we're shooting a 243 out of a rifle that had, I believe, a 1 in 12 twist. And I accidentally grabbed some heavier ammunition. And it didn't like it. And No, it did not <laughs> like that. And I was all over the map. And I remember thinking to myself, what, what, what is going on? And I had to look up, and finally I looked on the website and found that I was shooting a 1 in 12 twist with this you know, fairly heavy bullet. And that, there was my answer. But I guess that, that goes into just, you know, that's another thing to look at to consider what kind of ammunition you're going to want to be shooting. Because you want to make sure that that's actually going to be able to pass through there accurately. That's a good point. That is important. And and typically what happens in the the long-range stuff is usually the the slightly heavier for caliber bullets tend to perform better. They'll have higher BC numbers, so they fly more efficiently through the air. But then correspondingly, those bullets usually need to have a you know a bit faster twist to them to stabilize properly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you don't want to shoot them like a knuckleball. Yeah, essentially. <laughs> yeah, <there you> <laughs> exactly. yeah, it's it's interesting though. But if we think back about cartridges that are like on the scene now as premier long range cartridges, like time machine back to 1997, a guy named Jim Carmichael in Remington came out with a cartridge called the 260 Remington, which is like super popular now. <laughs> However, it failed miserably initially on a commercial like, release because they twisted the, the guns wrong. So all mm. the guns that you were getting were one in nine, one in 10 twists, and they couldn't stabilize anything over 120 grains, and it like fell on its face. Well, the, the guys who built guns and, and who knew what this cartridge was capable of started twisting them faster, one in eight, one in seven and a half, one in seven. And I'd say arguably this cartridge spawned the 6.5 Creedmoor, but the twist rate was wrong from the factory guns in the first place. So nowadays, this is getting kind of corrected, and we're seeing a lot more 6.5s come onto the American scene and 6s come onto the American scene, and the factories are doing the guns right. Twisting them a little faster. Yeah, correct, yeah. correct. Yeah. 
or more appropriately for those right. heavyweight bullets right. that right. we talked about. This is why we bring Ryan on because he always has interesting history. It's <laughs> a great story. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for that, Ryan. Yeah. So, all right, let's get into, and uh, we kind of saved this one a little bit, but it's probably obvious on the Vortex Nation podcast. Let's get into the scope a little bit. And I think, again, we'll, we'll mention that you don't need to go crazy. I think it's easy. Anybody can watch that video we have on YouTube where there's a Diamondback Tactical, which costs more than like 300 bucks. Mm-hmm. Actually, the three to nine costs even less Two, than 279 yeah, yeah, exactly. And, yeah. and we made it out to 1,000 yards. So it is doable with many different things. So, But what are some of the things you guys look for in an optic? And it can vary too, maybe depending on the rifle or the application. But for long-range shooting, what are some important things? I can, I can think of turrets being one but what go yep yep turrets decent glass um you know the the turrets probably are one of the key things that long-range shooters look at right off the bat you know you you want a turret that you can generally an external type turret where you're not having to pull a cap off it every time you want it to be one that dials very repeatedly up and down so you are going to be using that turret to make those corrections for distance so it should have nice you know you prefer nice nice solid good feeling clicks when you turn it. You want it to be very repeatable. So when you turn it up and you come back down to that zero that you mentioned earlier, Jimmy, that that hits that perfectly on the same time, every point coming back. Good glass is, you know, certainly important on the scopes. You know, you, you want the ability to see the target well, but there are many other things too. And good glass you bring up too. Now let's talk about that for a bit, because one thing that people look at all the time when they look at long range rifle scopes, or they think about shooting long range is they think, man, I got to get the most magnification I can get. But I've heard I've heard Ryan say it before. I've heard I probably everybody actually in this room say it before. A really excellently crafted optical system with a lower magnification trumps that of a lesser optical system in terms of clarity and all those other things, but with higher magnification. So essentially quality over quantity when it comes to your magnification. 100%. Would you guys agree? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I, w- I would rather have a scope half the power of a big magnification scope if it was 25% better optically. Right. If- and what you find, too, is when you shoot with lower magnification, the scopes are just easier to get behind. They're friendlier. You, mm-hmm. You'll find your head placement just easier. You'll be able to pick the target up quicker. So there are a lot of advantages there. Yeah, You don't automatically have to have just the highest magnification possible out there. You know, if... There are some venues of shooting where if you're trying to shoot very, very small targets, perhaps some extra magnification helps. But it's still, it's a, it's a balancing act. You know, you have to remember in these scopes, as you, as you progress from low to mid to high magnification ranges, the resolution of the scope is going to go down. It's going to get worse and worse the higher the magnification you go. No matter what scope, whether it's a low-end, mid-range, high-end scope, they're all going to get worse as you go up to higher magnifications. So there is a there's a sweet spot somewhere in the middle in there that that works very very well for sure. And I think I, you know when you think long range, a lot of times the competitive scene for that type of shooting long range is often you've got PRS. That's kind of a big one that I've seen. There's also F class and things like that. But but kind of for this sake of this argument, we'll think of the PRS guys and a lot of guys out there, for example, running Razor Gen two four and a half to twenty seven. So twenty seven. Is obviously a high magnification. You think that'd be the one that they prefer for their longer range shots, but I hear of a lot of guys actually mostly running somewhere around like eighteen. So I'm you sure that's you absolutely that sweet right. Spot. Yeah, um, yep. and I, I guess that I remember that always interested me at first when I was kind of getting into long range. But yeah, sometimes even the biggest magnification is actually not always the best one to use. Right. I mean, there are it has its places, but yeah, yeah, and you know, in any sort of dynamic shooting, whether it's hunting or PRS or a, you know a, a sniper out in the field or anything like that, the the ability to find the targets is key. And so you're running lower magnifications, you you will have a wider field of view. So it's it's faster and easier to locate targets that way too. So that's a you know something to always remember on that. Yeah. Yeah. And and you may you may locate that target on a lower mag and then zoom in if you right. like as well, yep. which is kinda nice to have, you yeah. know, that upper end after you've acquired that right. target. Right. I throw out there a lot of these long range scopes have you know, more complex reticles, you know, either a mill or uh, MOA-based, you know, hashmark-based reticle, oftentimes with a windage tree tree in the lower hemisphere of the scope. Did you say windage tree just because, no, I know you're not trying to X Christmas out of there. No, that's not your style. That's not your style. We'll leave that. We'll leave that for the public. Jim, I can barely say windage tree. Um, (laughs) But, uh, it can be called the Christmas tree. We, we, yeah. <laughs> we, we like the Christmas trees. I guess it does have all the dots that would maybe represent ornaments. Oh, there you um, go. Oh, Christmas. Carry on. Oh, I but anyway, uh, so uh, 
Now he's lost his life. I know, I lost, I know, I lost I my train of thought. We were talking about Technical radicals. radicals. Technical radicals. Now I hate Christmas. And, no. Uh. <laughs> no, we were uh, talking about radicals. Technical but so, yeah. Radicals, yeah. Yeah, so oftentimes these scopes have, you know, more more technical radicals, you know, essentially more more information in the reticle for the shooter to use. And, and uh, I'd say as, by and large, with our scopes, you know, you want to have those things match. So if you have MOA turrets, you mm-hmm. want to have an MOA-based reticle. Very important. Um, Very important. You know, it's so much easier. And because we are talking about dialing, you know, predominantly the elevation component, uh, I don't know if you guys could hear that, but I think we just got hit by lightning. First thunderstorm <laughs> of the year. Uh, <laughs> I'm so excited. Uh, a zero stop or a oh, locking yeah. turret can be a really handy feature just because you are taking that turret up and down. And it's nice to be able to, uh, if you lose track of turns or, or heck, maybe, maybe you go to the range and you're dialing up and down and you forget to return it to zero. That's just in a really easy, convenient way to come back home and know yeah. that, that you're back great, on zero. Great, great yeah. part of the scope, yeah. Yeah, not a need yeah. to have, but a really nice to have. Even if it's a rotational stop, like in the HST or HSLR or something like that, or the Gen 1 PST, just as long as... Because after you do, you're dialing all day, you just bring it back down, and it at least stops you from going a full revolution beyond. So when you pull it out, it's timeout. You're yeah. not wondering where the heck you're shooting. Like you said, yeah, that, that zero stop feature or locking turrets, not necessarily a need to have, a very nice to have, and, and probably two features that you're going to find on kind of those, those upper tier, upper echelon scopes. Mm-hmm, for sure. And then I'll bring up, I'll bring up one last thing that's just equipment wise when it relates to kind of the optic too. And then I'd like to get into the dialing part as well, but is, is the rings. Because I think that all too often someone will get a really nice rifle and then they'll say, oh, man, I got this really nice rifle. I got to put a really nice scope on top. And then they go out and get a really nice scope. And they're like, dang, I'm out of money. Uh, I'll take those rings. And they just create the cheapest rings. And they didn't realize that what they did was they took two precision instruments that need to perform together in harmony. And they connected them with, like, something not precise. Right. And it's just, that's, like, the most important part. That, that's it's very important. <laughs> yeah. It is very important. Yeah, unfortunately, we do see that quite a bit. It, yeah. it's, a, it's a big mistake. You know, it's not the place to try to save a few pennies. You know, no. when you're looking at the overall package of the rifle and the scope, buying a good quality set of rings is, is really not going to cost you all that much more. And, and the problem with the inexpensive rings is the, the machining tolerances generally are not all that great. And so what, what happens to the scope is the scope is put in a set of rings that don't quite perfectly line up with each other. Mm-hmm. And then that very subtly bends the scope a little bit. And all of a sudden, the scope doesn't do what it's supposed to do. It doesn't adjust well. It doesn't track well. It doesn't come back to zero. So yeah. that's a great point, Jim. Yeah, don't you, cut corners on your rings. Right. Or, or even potentially it slips slightly in the rings or, or just things like that happen. And, you know, we see, we see scopes come back that have been in a really poor quality set of rings oftentimes, and the person's having a tough time getting it to group well or to, or to dial well, and we see ring marks all over the scope too because those those rings have just been digging in because they're not very well machined. They're not very concentric, and, and that's, just, that's just what happens. So don't skimp on your rings. Don't save the pennies there. No. Yeah. no. But anyway, like I said, I, I, wanted to, I wanted to touch on that one, but we've been talking about dialing a lot here. And I think that that is that's that's an important thing. And now, kind of now that we've gotten everybody set up right, we know the terminology we're using here. And we know kind of what you'll need. I think it's really easy a lot of times for people to get behind a rifle and a scope that's already set up to shoot a thousand yards. A lot of times, I've gone to the range and somebody goes, "Hey, like check this out. I got this is my new uh, PRS rifle. Check it out. Shoot it at a thousand. You just step up, and all of a sudden, you know, put the crosshairs on and ping." And it's awesome. You're like, hey, man, I'm a good long-range shooter. <laughs> but you don't realize everything that went into actually getting it out there. And, and a lot of that is dialing. We've mentioned getting your muzzle velocity. We've mentioned, you know, kind of figuring out a lot of just the physical assets that you need to get out there. But just when it comes to the actual kind of calculation portion, I'll have you guys talk about it. When you've zeroed, what's the process of then just getting out there? And maybe the, maybe a little bit before if you got to get into that, but it's like it's like baking a cake, I guess. And the dialing is like the final spin on the blender. Like that's the thing needed to mix it all together and and produce that product that that long range impact. Mm-hmm. So um, maybe we do have to talk about the zero in yeah, too. I probably should have. Yeah, I shouldn't have yeah. mixed that. Let's out. touch it. That would be kind of the baseline part is to you know to get the get the scope installed, use good parts, buy a decent scope, have a decent rifle. And then, you, then you're going to take it and you're going to do a 100-yard zero, just like you might any other hunting rifle that guys are using. Hey, and Paul, real quick there. Explain why you would recommend a 100-yard zero versus true. maybe a 200-yard zero. Mm-hmm. 
a couple of reasons. It's generally, it's very doable for most everyone to find a, a place to shoot at 100 yards. So there, there are no issues there. The other thing is that as we get into this, you'll find you, you have to start to pay attention to atmospherics out there. So when right. you're in, in different temperature ranges, different altitudes, all those atmospherics will, will affect that ballistic curve we talked about. And 100 yards zero works well because it's, it's a short enough distance that varying atmospherics, temperature ranges, most of the normal elevation changes that guys would take, they have very little effect at 100 yards. So that 100-yard zero is going to work in many different hmm. places. So it is, it is good. Yeah, the 100-yard zero is probably the best place to do it. A lot of the, the Western hunting guys sometimes will zero out at 200 yards, but there they're trying to maximize what they call a point-blank zero. We won't get into that. That's kind of a hunting thing. It's not really tied into this, this long-range right. shooting. So, right. yeah, 100-yard 100, 100 zero is a great place to start. But that's, that's like the building block for all this is get a very solid 100-yard zero. You know, you'll find out if your rifle shoots tight groups. You know, you can work through all those little initial problems right off the bat. But when you get it down and you've got the ability now to show exactly where you're going to hit at 100 yards, keep those bullets in a nice tight little group, hopefully maybe a half inch or so, you're off to a great start there. And then we'll go back to Ryan and he can sort of touch the next stage that a guy would use after that. Yeah. So assuming you've, you've gotten all these components together and you've, you've got your map or your ballistic data out, the process of dialing is just that. We reach up, we grab the turret, and we input that information into the rifle scope. And whether it's MOA or MRAD, that, is, that adjustment is making your rifle scope move internally, effectively changing your zero to whatever the distance your target is. Can I ask a question real yeah. fast? When you talk about you've gotten all the information from mm. a ballistic calculator, yep. for the most part, most of these ballistic calculators sort of prompt you for the information. You don't yes. have to sort of like make it up or figure out what they want. They usually give you, hey, Fields. I need the muzzle velocity. Yep. I need the, okay. Correct. Anyway, carry on. So, so yeah, I mean, the, the dialing, the, the rotation of that turret, and I'm referencing the elevation turret specifically here, is just changing your zero effectively from your 100 to whatever the distance of your target is based on those calculations and the figures that that calculator spits out. And like we talked about earlier with validation, though, you may find that it's not exactly that. You may find that it has to change. If we recall that, that video in which we were shooting that Diamondback Tactical out to 1,000, my calculator told me it was supposed to be like 28.2 something uh, MOA of adjustment for an impact at 1,000 yards from our, our 100 yard zero. But in validating on that range, we actually found out it was like 31 and a half. So right. there was a considerable discrepancy there. And and, and walk, walk through the listeners what you did there, Ryan. So you you dialed that. The pro, the program told you to yes. dial in 28 MOA. Yep. And you so, dialed it and then shot and yeah. then observed that the bullets were striking yeah, low. Yeah, I, I fired and I, I, I saw that low impact. Um, and the shot was good. And this is through an experience thing where... I think a lot of folks might go out to the range and, and I, I, I implore them to, to kind of be patient with themselves and their, their weapon system when they are shooting it. But, you know, through experience, you, you pull a trigger, you'll know when you broke a good shot. It's like shooting a bow, too. You know when it was good or you know when you pulled. And, and at that shot, that first shot on steel at 1,000, like it broke well and it impacted far lower than I had anticipated it to. Like I could see myself missing about the size of the plate, you know. Mind you, spotting through a nine-power diamond tackle. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. <laughs> uh, pretty darn good little optic, by the way, if yeah. you guys are looking for something. But uh, Which, again, you know, highlights some of the advantages yeah. of shooting some of these, you know, gentler cartridges. Yeah. Oh, right. absolutely. Yep. True, yep. true. Um, so I saw that impact low, and, and using the reticle in that optic, it's a VMR1 MOA reticle. I was able to reference where my hold was relative to where my impact was and dial that correction back into the scope. So I added that additional four, almost four MOA into that, fired again, second round impact on steel, and then it was, we were off to the races. We were hammering right. away on that thing. So that is a, a kind of a, an interesting touch on range validation. Just happened to be at the target I was shooting at, you know, and... and and we're bringing up, too, some correction things mm -hmm. as well, which, and I, you might have had more, but Mark also brought up earlier the whole MOA and inches mm -hmm. things, and so you were just talking about dialing an MOA, yep. which is important to consider, especially at long oh, yeah. range. Had you have tried dialing in inches, you would have been a lost oh, mess. Oh, yeah. No, that, that's a, that's a yeah, very the good turret, point. The turrets don't say inches on no. right. No, they say <laughs> MOA or MRAD. If you ask yeah. me how many inches an MOA was at 100 yards, it could tell you it's 1.047. If you ask me what it was at 117 yards, I will blink and stare at you because <laughs> I, no, I have no idea. But, but speak the language that your rifle scope is built in. And it's like reading a tape measure. One of the guys downstairs says that, too. You know, if you were a carpenter, 
and your your architect gave you a, a blueprint for a home built in inches and a tape measure in inches, you could build the house. The same could be said with centimeters and a, a tape measure in centimeters. You could build that house to that print. There's no inches in your scope. Speak the language of the scope. You'll find it infinitely easier. Mm-hmm. It's what the reticle is in. Like yep. you use the reticle, yep. for example, and you're on, you know, and you're on nine power and there's a first, first, second focal plane, whole yeah. podcast out there. You should probably listen to it if you're thinking about this, but you're on nine power. Yep. So your, your reticle is calibrated essentially to the, to the proportion of, of the target. Mm-hmm. And so you were able to just use what we already know on the reticle, which are those hash marks like a ruler or like a, like a tape measure in a way, and then make your dials. Cause, cause holding over and dialing is essentially two different ways. A, a lot of times yeah. you're doing the same yep. thing. You're just, you're yep. moving where your barrel is. Yeah. Pointed. Look at the, look at the reticle is like the, I don't know if we'd call it the, the manual version of doing it. And then the turret is the, well, I guess it would be manual too, but uh, <laughs> like an overlay versus a, a, a correction. Yeah. It was, it was, yeah. it was really quite cool. And, and we were, we had a lot of impacts on that thing by the end. Oh yeah. Of the day. A couple. Yeah. And okay. The other thing too, when you dialed and you were low to get higher, what way, what direction? Did you dial? Follow your turret. Your turret will never lie to you. You dialed up, right? Correct. Because that's where you wanted your bullet to go. Correct. Up. Looking through the scope, right. though, it moves your reticle down, and this can be very confusing because it, it's it's opposite. <laughs> but if we think of well, how, to, get people, yeah. how to force your muzzle, if we need to move our bullet's impact up, the scope has no bearing on the projectile itself. It's simply forcing you, the shooter, to, to reorient the gun. So if we move our reticle down, we have to force our muzzle up. It's going to allow us to, to change the angle and the arc that we're going to use uh, to get downrange. So. Right. Yeah, if you think what happens, if you... If you're looking at a target and you dial up and then you're watching and you see the reticle travel down in the field of view as you make that up adjustment, but then think what happens next to hit that target. Now you have to lift the whole thing up a little bit to put the crosshairs back on your target. And then what you've done is you've elevated the muzzle of the rifle. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. I, I can think of two analogies that might even provide, you know, some some clarity. One thing I think is like if a person's throwing a football, right? What do you have to do if you want to throw to a receiver that's further away? You need to throw it higher and give it yep. that higher arc, that, that yeah. higher arc, yep. that yeah. higher trajectory. Mm-hmm. Or we talk about the turrets on a rifle scope, and you think of a gun turret on a, a navy vessel. Sure. Yep. You know. Yep. Uh, which possibly I don't know if that's where these get their names or not. But I, I mean that, that's I mean that's what's happening essentially. The barrel, if you will, on that gunboat is pointing further up is pointing further up if, if the target is further away and when you're adjusting the turret on your rifle scope you are in essence moving that internal erector tube mm-hmm. yep. where the reticle is located up or down mm-hmm. you know right. we're talking about you know the just the elevation turret here right so you're moving that up yep. to engage that target that's yep. further away yeah, yeah. trust trust yep. your turrets and, yep. and a lot of different rifle scope manufacturers i've run into over the years will have different ways of doing it, but I've never seen a rifle scope that has ever been machined backwards. So it's a common call we get. Mm-hmm. So it's, I, I, it hasn't happened yet, folks. Um, <laughs> Man, I tell you, somebody would have to go How often do you get that call, right? It's that comes in here pretty time, one or One or two a day, probably, during peak shooting season. Completely shut down the whole factory, yeah. re, re, like redo the whole machine, do one turret, Quick, shut it down again, redo it all over again, and then make all the rest of them the right way. Yeah, yeah. That would be a nightmare. So trust your turrets. Yeah. They, will, they will point you in the right direction, no pun intended. Totally. Another thing, I'll, uh, I'll circle back here really quickly. Ryan had talked about there about using your reticle to measure those when, you know, when you're seeing distance and you're watching those bullet strikes and then using that reticle to measure those gaps and, and then correcting on the turret. Circling back to the Mark mentioned the Christmas tree reticle earlier, well, that's where those kind of fancy reticles that have lots of mm-hmm. reference points, both for drop and also the windage, the left and right, they allow you the ability with that sort of grid pattern that you look at to see where those bullet strikes on the target, and then you, you get a visual correction for both the drop and the wind. And so now you can, you know, you can correct on that follow-up shot, and that's where the big benefit of the Christmas tree style reticle comes in. Right. What I'd say it can also be very beneficial for if you're shooting with somebody. Oh, yeah. Oh, my god! If they have a similar setup or identical setup, they can really assist in calling your shots. Yes, You know, so if they're, you know, by measuring off their reticle, if they see your bullet splash, whether it's, you know, uh, on the target or in the dirt, they can give you a correction to say, hey, you need to come left or right or up or down just by measuring off 
off of the, right. their reticle that's in right. their rifle. Right. So. You know, we see that every year with the, the team shooting events that we do out at the Vortex Extreme where two mm-hmm. shooters, you can definitely help the other guy out by watching those shots. Yeah, Definitely. It's like playing Battleship with a friend. It is. Yes. Uh, <laughs> but Who doesn't like that? No. Well, <laughs> well hey. What else? What else you got? Because I know I think we're gonna, we might actually have to do a long range shooting one thousand two at some point. But I see some other good stuff. Maybe maybe as we start to as we start to round out. Because Ryan and Paul did an excellent example of, or you know, just speaking you essentially out to a thousand. There's a few other things I see on your paper that are important too. But you know, maybe we can further elaborate on some other stuff too at, at another point. But so you know, I mean, and this is something I've heard Paul mention in the past, and it really was almost like a a revelation in my mind. And we're talking a lot about distances and we're talking about known distances, right? So really none of these things happen without knowing the distance. And like, this just really struck me when you said it one time, Paul, is that the, the range finder was really the, the catalyst hmm. for a lot of these things coming about. Oh, it was an absolute game changer. Um, absolute game changer. And you kind of look at the foundation, like none of these things happen without having a known distance, or at least not very well. No, right? Right. trial and error. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, I mean, that's, that's another thing a person is going to need if, if they're not at a range with maybe, you know, previously marked yardages Yeah, you can't, distances. you can't do the long-range game without a range finder. Right, you right. Know, it's, it it's, looks like it's about a, seven. Right. So, I mean, that's, I mean, that's, I guess, you know, we are talking about tools earlier. That's definitely yeah. a tool that you're going to yeah. need. Oh, it's that huge. You know, one, when yeah. I... When I spent many years in the past as a as a professional guide, there were years that I guided before the advent of laser rangefinders. And and part of what you made a living at as a guide was your ability to accurately estimate ranges. And it was pretty interesting. I lived through the time when when laser rangefinders first hit the markets, and so I had the you know the interesting experience of hunting in a variety of terrains, steep slopes, cross canyons, all that sort of thing. And I hunted the same country every year, so I sort of knew in my head what I thought these ranges were from previous years of you know of guiding hunters and working in these areas. And to go back once rangefinders became common, and it was almost an overnight thing. It happened really in 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 one year. And to go back and now have the ability to instantly and and very accurately tell the distance that I was going was just eye opening. You know, there were some I was actually pretty close at, but there was a whole lot of others where I was not anywhere hmm. near. And so, you know, no surprise when you got those long shots and that stuff, you don't, you couldn't make accurate hits without that. Yeah. So it was, rangefinders are a, you know, they're a key part of this puzzle. Yeah. Yeah. I guess a, a lot of, a lot of this was assuming you're out of range with all the targets already pretty much laid out for you. But if they're not, or if you got to figure it out, whew. Yeah. If you were to, you know, if you were to be out in the field and you were looking at long range shooting and you had unknown targets and you lost your rangefinder. That game's pretty much over. Yep. You know, you could you could start sort of lobbing things out and taking guesses, but you know that's a slow and set your rifle down and pace it out. Uh, <laughs> we always figured that's how you did it. You found the sheep, you walked out to it, came back, told your clients about three hundred and two paces, <laughs> ran out there quickly, <laughs> crawled up to them, and ran back. Judging by how tired I am, I'd say I just ran about thousand yards. So. <laughs> I suppose if you lost your rangefinder, that'd be a good uh, reason to have a lot of data in your reticle to see where that first round hit. Yeah, yes, I mean true, that would be true. your only your only option, really. And you know, in that instance, if it comes to live game, you better not be shooting at game trying to estimate that sort of thing. You might shoot off to the side someplace on a rock, a, a rock on yeah. the same the yeah. same hillside. Yeah. That's, did did we just borderline graze the what's too far to shoot? game at i don't want to get into that too too much because we'll, otherwise otherwise it might take forever but don't shoot a game unless you know you can hit it yeah right? we'll, we'll we'll maybe just hit that quickly it's a it's a very contentious topic it's certainly changed a lot in the last few years you know and i think there are you know a lot of ethical concerns in there and obviously none of us want to shoot at game and wound it that's you know it's something you really should strive not to do what the definition of long-range hunting today is versus what it was five years ago, ten years ago, though, it's changed a lot. Oh, you know, yeah. what's happened is the the rise in technologies has really, it's made the ability to shoot accurately at long ranges keep progressing out there and out there. And, and where that cutoff is, is, you know, it's still a touchy subject. It's It's dependent very much on... You know, many things, the rifle, the equipment being used, the shooter talent skill. of the shooter, yeah. the, the weather conditions, you know, wind is, we haven't touched on wind yet, but wind is a huge part of this long range game. It's the, it is the most difficult part of the game. So everyone has to kind of make that call for themselves. But, but as you said, Jimmy, the, the goal is if you're shooting at game is you want to, you want to make a lethal hit. 
So you have to have that ability to, to keep your shots within, say, a, you know, maybe an 8, 10-inch circle and, and no more than that. And as soon as wind, for example, comes into play, then all of a sudden that range has to, has to come in a lot closer. You know, no, your, your ability to keep shots in a tight circle with a, with a crosswind blowing, the further out you mm, get, the yep. worse and worse it gets. So everyone kind of has to make that call for themselves. We won't, right. we won't right. get in it too deep to just picking a number and throwing it out there. But I like the way our man Steve Ranella on Meteor says it. If you pull the trigger and you thought, oh, I wonder if I hit it, eh, it's probably. That's right. not a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> it's different okay. for some people. Yeah. You know, me, I'm not going to, you know, personally probably engage it as far as Paul might, just because Paul probably would be able to shoot a little bit further out than me yep. and know that he hit it. But right. you know, And, of just, course, you know, we're talking about hunting here. When it yeah. comes to shooting steel and targets, you know, now that ethical picture has gone out of there. So now, you yeah. know, someone should, I, we would highly encourage them to go out and shoot in crosswinds oh, totally. and high winds yeah. and learn that sort of thing. You know, that's the way to begin to develop, a you know, a, a feel for how to shoot under those conditions, you yeah. know. Yeah, it's a very different, it's a very different uh, conversation when, when somebody says, what is long range? For a shooter, and are we talking steel? Are we talking critters? Exactly. Exactly. Um, for for me, long range steel as well. G- golly, I pick the horizon. I guess uh, when it's hunting, anything the further, over the further the better. Yeah, yeah. the further the funner. It, if it's hunting, it's like three hundred yards. I consider long range, and then anything over that is, is you're seriously taking a minute to yeah. To yeah. Figure Everybody out what's has going to on. kind of draw their own yeah. line there. You know where yeah. you feel under the prevailing conditions that yep. you can keep that shot in, yep. a, in a lethal kill zone. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think I think it's I think Paul, you nailed a couple nailed a couple things there. But I mean, I think one of the biggest ones. It's based on the individual. It's based on on their experience, their capabilities. My my maximum effective range might be vastly different than yours, and so it's difficult to say what that is. Bullet performance. That's a huge. You know, one. I mean, yeah, so that's right. definitely going to come yeah. into play. Like you know, we're we're advocating shooting some of these you know milder cartridges, right? Which is awesome for steel. But those things aren't going to have the same downrange performance at extended ranges that maybe a heavier caliber might have. Right, yeah, so. when, we're, you know, when we're talking about hunting and killing game, then you get into that topic of the bullet performance mm-hmm. when, it's, you know, when it strikes mm-hmm. and how does that bullet expand and yep. you know, become lethal. And yeah, that's, that is a big part of that yeah. too. But I mean, you know, and, and even to, to relate it to you know, archery, you know, I, I know guys that 40 yards might as well be 1,000 yards. And then I know some guys that can very effectively and routinely and consistently <laughs> hit targets and game at 100 yards yeah, and sometimes beyond, talent. right? Yeah. You know, and, and these are exceptions, right? And this comes with extreme practice, extreme ability. They, they obviously have a knack for it. So, I mean, all these things just, I guess, you know, like I said, yeah, just, ha- it comes down just, to the individual. But, you, have but to be, you just have to be careful. I think everyone should recognize, though, that for good or evil, better or worse, the technology mm-hmm. has improved leaps and bounds over what mm-hmm. it was, say, six, seven years ago. The equipment, the bullets, the scopes, the rangefinders, everything, all these different parts of this puzzle have gotten much better. Mm-hmm. So you have to be careful. You know, if you have a, a personal setting that you feel is an ethical limit for long-range hunting, be careful about throwing that number on someone else, though, because the you know mm-hmm. everyone has to do that call themselves. Agreed. That was a good end right there. But on that note, how about we do a quick last call on long range shooting? Everything we talked about here, long range shooting one one thousand one. What do you got, Mark? We'll start with you. My last call is probably the thing that we didn't talk about that you could talk about a lot, and the different ways of you know compensating for it is is the wind and and Paul touched on it briefly but the wind is is a ever changing fluid component that at least you can accommodate for it you know, I guess you know mathematically to some degree with a with a wind meter you know like a kestrel or something like that but also the wind at your position it may not be the same as the wind between you and your target and at your target so even then even even with this technology you are guessing a little bit yeah, when you you know when you boil this down and you start to learn the basics of this, what what you fairly quickly come to is you begin to have to learn to deal with wind, and wind is the trickiest part of this whole uh-huh. game. You know the the ballistic pro, the the calculators and programs that we talked about earlier, they allow you to plug in a certain you know you might guess a wind speed at ten or fifteen miles an hour, and you can plug that into that calculator, and it'll tell you how much left or right of your target to hold to compensate for that wind. 
but the whole trick is coming up with what is that accurate number? You know, is it 10? Is it 12? Is it 13? And like Mark said, then you have to deal with the fact is, you know, it's blowing near me. What about mid range? What about down, downwind all the way at the target? So all those kind of come into play. So it's a real puzzle. You know, that's what really separates the masters at long range shooting is the guys that are really good at guessing what that wind speed is. Mm. So yeah, that's what I got. Good last call. That's huge. Paul, was that I, your last call? You know, call the, thing, the, thing, the thing I would throw in there is just is to let everybody know that this is a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun. You know, whether or not you hunt or not, doesn't really matter. Shooting steel at long range is an absolute blast. It's an incredibly satisfying thing to do, to learn a little bit about this, learn how to use a program. You Like you said earlier, Jim, you don't have to spend a fortune on a rifle and a scope and all this. You can do it with some very mid-priced stuff. But the satisfaction of figuring this stuff out yourself, going out to a range, and then being able to hit a small target, a small piece of steel out there at a thousand yards or beyond, it is, you know, we all know it. We've all done it here. It is, it's just a whole lot of fun. There's a huge level of satisfaction to it. So I think anyone can go out and do that and just really enjoy it. That is a really good last that call. That is a good point. Yeah. Good. Is it even worth me trying to? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know either. <clears throat> the biggest thing for me, my, my, my last call is we get this, this question a lot. When you're, if you decide that long range shooting, target shooting is something you want to get into, the immediate tendency that we see is folks go out and they, they over caliber themselves, they over scope themselves, and they, they probably over rifle themselves. And it can be very discouraging when, when you've got a system that doesn't work or is not very forgiving, anyways. It's like getting into a very high horsepower car. I wouldn't want you to take your driver's test in an F1 car because it's going to be pretty squirrely. And the same, the same can be said with rifles. And we talked earlier about shooting rimfire at long range. And, and I'm not telling you to go out and spend a bunch of money on a 22 necessarily. It's not probably the best route to become a proficient long range shooter. But what it has done for me is I've been able to shoot, and I shoot quite a bit, probably a 1,000 to 1 with my rimfire. I mean, I shoot it every time I go to the range. And instead of having, you know, a thousand yards between me and my target, maybe I have 300, but the form, the execution, the techniques, using the optics, wind calls, holdovers, corrections, it's all interpreted the same. And I go buy a box of, of inexpensive ammunition and I go out and shoot it and, and I can learn the optic that I'm using. I can learn trigger control. I can learn all the, the fundamentals that really make up probably the bulk of this recipe for success and then execute it at, you know, three cents a shot instead of a buck 33 a shot. And that's a, that's a big thing. So. Yeah. And you, and you can do all those same things at a, at a much compressed distance. Oh, yes. You don't need that actual thousand, yeah. You, yeah. you know, what you're doing at 300 yards or 400 is equivalent to a center fire rifle shooting out beyond a mm-hmm. thousand yards. So and, it is a great way. Even yeah. shooting a hundred or in at very small targets with a rim fire can, can be hugely beneficial. I was shooting last night at, at quarter inch and, and half inch diameter targets at 50 yards. And having to use my reticle for hold off at that distance and having to dial and, and play with it there, it, it can teach you a tremendous amount. So get, get a rifle that you can shoot a lot that won't break your bank, won't, won't sink your wallet or your ship or whatever, and, and something that you're comfortable with and you can become very proficient at just pulling the trigger a lot. That's great yeah. advice. Great advice. You guys had so many la- good last calls that mine is just going to be, thanks for listening, and if you have any other questions about long-range shooting – Definitely hit us up on any one of our social media platforms with hashtag Vortex Nation podcast. Other potentials for topics, obviously Mark brought up wind, and there's many other things that we could talk about with long-range shooting, but of course we tried to make this kind of a 1001. But that said, if you find yourself out on the range and you're following a little bit of what we talked about here, but you just kind of reach a point where you wonder, you're not quite sure where to go on, 800-426-0048, extension 5. You'll get one of the dudes downstairs, all these guys here on the phones, are very experienced long-range shooters. Any one of them can talk you right through it, literally while you're on the range, and just help you get out to a 1,000. Like Paul said, it's a heck of a fun time. Brian once put it in perspective for me. You're shooting essentially a little rock a 1,000 yards away at a piece of steel. It doesn't get any more caveman than that. It really is. In a modern way. So that's a a good time. But anyway. Our spears have improved. Our spears (laughs) have improved, yes. So anyway, again, thanks, everybody, for listening, and uh, we'll catch you next time. All right, that'll wrap it up for this episode of the Vortex Nation podcast. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Hit that subscribe button so you can always stay up to date on the latest happenings over here at the Vortex Nation podcast. 
Leave us a review or comment down below. We want to hear what you have to say about the show. Maybe what you like, maybe what you didn't like. So that way we can make these podcasts as good as they can be. Hey, if you were interested in some of the information you heard here too, but you don't want to go all the way back and listen to the whole thing again just to get out one little nugget of information, check out the link in the description because we'll have this in PDF form with uh, pretty much everything that we've talked about. You can also follow us on Instagram at Vortex Nation Podcast. We'll be posting about each episode released so that way you can go back find these things, maybe grab a little nugget of information that you could take with you to the range, out in the field, or uh, maybe to the kitchen if we're talking about some good food. So again, everybody, thanks and happy hunting and shooting. We appreciate it. Have a good one.